You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, and welcome to another episode of CRST, the podcast. Uh, this is Brian Kim, and I'm a refractive cataract surgeon and corneal specialist in private practice at Professional Eye Associates in Dalton, Georgia. And I'm also volunteer faculty at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. As guest medical editor of CRST's July issue, I had the opportunity to present a series of challenging scenarios which I have personally encountered and struggled with during the preoperative consultation. And so I'm thrilled to be here as host of today's discussion of a few of these scenarios. Joining me are three of the contributors to this issue, Drs. Nicole Fram, Morgan Mescheletti, and Ashley Brissett, and each shared how they'd manage these tough scenarios. Nicole, Morgan, and Ashley, thank you so much for being here. Let's begin with a few introductions, and we'll go alphabetically, starting with Ashley, Morgan, and then Nicole. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm Ashley Brissett. I'm an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian Hospital here in New York City, and my focus is primarily cataract and refractive surgery. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me, and happy to be here. I'm Morgan Micheletti. I'm a cataract refractive and anterior segment surgeon at Berkeley Eye Center in Houston, Texas. Hi, I'm Nicole Fram. I'm the managing partner at Advanced Vision Care in Los Angeles and also a clinical instructor at the Stein Eye Institute at UCLA. Uh, my practice is mainly uh, refractive cataract surgery, complex cataract surgery, and cornea and external disease. Excellent. Well, thank you all once again for being here. Well, let's jump into it with the first of the three challenging scenarios we'll be discussing today. So the first scenario is talking to the patients about specific refractive goals. So here's the case. A 57-year-old computer programmer presents for a cataract surgery consultation and notes his strong desire for spectacle independence. He explains that several of his friends recently had cataract surgery. One had the Acrosoft Panoptics lens, another had the Technus Ihance, and another had this Acrosoft Vividi lens. And so the patient has done quite a bit of research online, but the Iowa options are confusing to him, and he wants to pick the best one for his visual needs. And so the first question is, you know, with the current available IOL options, you know, what's your decision-making tree for choosing the right IOL for a patient seeking spectacle independence? And then assuming the patient passes all the typical preoperative screening tests, you know, macular OCT, coronal topography, endothelial cell count, et cetera, how would you frame the conversation with the patient regarding his specific refractive goals and what the IOL can achieve? So Ashley, this is a scenario for which you offered your thoughts in the publication. Would you please provide an overview of your response? Yeah, so my response kind of ended up being quite long to this, and I think that really speaks to how this decision-making can sometimes feel somewhat complex. Um, But I try to break it down to make it a little bit more digestible to four specific questions. So what I think to myself when I see patients that are maybe looking for a more advanced technology lens are what's the patient's current refraction? So what are they used to doing? How are they currently wearing their glasses? Have they done monovision before or mini monovision? Because that might help me kind of guide my direction in terms of what I recommend 
for a lens implant. And then the second question that I ask myself is, what, what are the patient's post-operative visual goals? And you really have to listen to the patient here because they will tell you what's important to them and really getting to the bottom of what is important to them so you can provide that as a visual goal, I think becomes really, um, really necessary in counseling and guiding that direction and conversation in the lens options. And then question three is, what can the patient afford? Because we do know that some of these more advanced technology intraocular lenses are an out-of-pocket cost for the patient. So is this even going to be financially available to them? And then lastly, and kind of at the end of the day, you know, we are the final decision maker. So what is my recommendation based on all of this information? I mean, there's so many lenses that we can choose from nowadays that it can feel somewhat overwhelming. And it's overwhelming for us to think about how overwhelming it must feel for the patient to make that final decision. So I always present the options to the patient. And then I will generally say, you know, in my opinion, I think these would be your best options. What are you thinking? And if they need more directed care, I often say something like, well, if you were my family member or friend, this is what I would strongly recommend for you. Because some people do want some more directed answers. Other people might want to kind of come to a decision a little bit more easy. Actually, I, I read your piece and I, I really loved everything you said about it. I think starting from what you said, you got to listen to the patient and you want to know where their starting point is. I think that that's kind of like your frame of reference to kind of extrapolate what the patient's already has and able to achieve refractively and then what more do they want. And, and like you said, um, listening to the patient. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think... Absolutely. Those are things that all of us should be doing. Any thoughts from uh, Morgan and Nicole to add? I, I completely agree with what Ashley said. I mean, I think it's all about the preoperative discussion with the patient and really setting expectations. I love that you said, uh, you know, this is what I would do if it were if you were my mother. I think that's a great thing. I've, I've gotten into trouble with some of my uh, younger patients. And so I make sure to say, this is what I would do if you were my sister or brother. Yeah, <laughs> be careful. <laughs> but uh, no, I think I think those are all perfect points, and I agree completely. So this patient is a younger patient, and they are computer programmers, so they're very precise in their thinking. If this patient is uh, low myope, uh, they are going to expect a certain quality of vision. And if they look at their phone without glasses and they read without glasses and their dream is to be out of glasses for distance, the only kind of option for them is going to be some sort of mini monovision with a precise uh, monofocal enhanced lens, such as the eye hands. Uh, if the patient is really motivated to be out of glasses for everything, you can have the conversation about a trifocal um, or a multifocal, but they have to understand that this is not going to be as crisp um, as what they're used to as a low myope. And I think the last point is that if patients have friends that have had different technology, it's very important to explain to them that what works for some patients is not necessarily going to work for them because they have different anatomy and different expectations. Yeah, I think patients also like really want to customize care. I think in the old days of cataract surgery, and that's not even that long ago, that's just a few years ago, we had a limited number of lens options to choose from. And we kind of just had like one or two lenses that people generally used. But now we have so many available that cataract surgery itself it really needs to become customized care for each patient. 
Yeah, I love that. I think customized care is a is a great phrase for, for exactly what this is. And you're right, we do have so many options now, and it's really our job to distill what we think is most important and relevant for the patient to know. I mean, we, we obviously, you know, as much as we'd love to have the time to take each patient through each of the risks and benefits of each individual IOL, we just don't have the time, right? So that, that puts a lot of burden on us. But I, I think that by distilling that information down to outcomes, uh, can really help a patient align their expectations with what actually happens postoperatively. Yeah, I agree. And implicit to that is really just taking the time. You know, I mean, you know, we're very busy. We're seeing, you know, a lot of patients, reimbursements are shrinking. And sometimes you just feel the pressure that you got to keep moving. But I think, uh, like you all have said, you just need to take a time, pause, slow down, and really be able to extract that information from the patient. All right. So, the next scenario is when money is no object. So here's a case. A 63-year-old man is referred for cataract surgery consultation. His vision is correctable to 2020, but he has severe glare symptoms. Brightness acuity testing is 2060 in both eyes, largely due to one to two plus posterior subcapsular cataracts. He would like the best implant money can buy, so he doesn't have to wear glasses. He has trace corneal guttata in both eyes and minimal RPE changes on Mac OCT. And so Question number one, how would you frame the conversation regarding the patient's comorbidity and desire for spectacle independence? Two, would you offer the patient a presbyopia correcting IOL, trifocal, bifocal, extended depth of focus, or advise them to consider an alternative option? And then three, you know, how would you respond when the patient asks, what would you do if you were in my shoes, doc? So, Nicole, you com commented on this case in the article. Please share your thoughts and how you'd approach this patient. So thank you, Brian. This is a really great case because it emphasizes the challenges that we're under as physicians to give the patients the best outcomes. Sometimes their anatomy doesn't go along with the technology that's going to give them all of the flexibility. So the thing I do when I see a patient like this is I ask them what they do all day. I'm asking them, are you wearing glasses for distance? Are you wearing glasses to look at your phone? Do you mind putting on glasses to read a book? And those types of answers and their resistance or their ability to be reasonable um, will influence what direction I'm going in. Um, this patient needs to understand their anatomy and that our hands are tied by their anatomy with what we can offer them. So I pull up Rendia. I, it's a system where we can actually, um, it's a schematic where we can show them different parts of the eye and how light rays scatter and how light rays work. And so I do that to help us all get on the same playing field in terms of understanding what we're trying to do and what technology fits their circumstance best. So in this type of patient, I'll explain what happens when you have gute and how there can be light scattering. Um, I'll also explain um, that patients that only have a small amount of gute usually don't progress to having problems with advanced technology. Um, the next thing I do is I pull up their macular OCT and I show them what kind of changes they have and that sometimes these things can be affected by um, light splitting or uh, spreading um, and that can cause difficulty with contrast and with that precise vision. Uh, this is a patient that said, I want everything uh, that money can buy, but money can't, as we, we all know, can't buy health in every circumstance. And so it's really important that the patient understands that we're going to do the best to decrease the dependence on glasses 
but there will be circumstances where they need glasses. And so by explaining, you could get a multifocal, but that would help you now and not necessarily in the next five years. And if you have to have some sort of removal and replacement, that could then make her, his corneal pathology worse. Um, you could do an extended depth of focus lens, but that also stretches or splits light depending on the technology. Once again, that precision may not be there. And so even with the extended depth of focus lenses, he'll still need glasses for reading up close. So in this scenario, I would help guide the patient in the direction of the safest long-term um, visual rehabilitation, which in my opinion would be mini monovision or even better, the light adjustable lens, as long as the RPE changes were not drusen and there wasn't a strong family history of macular degeneration as this has not been studied extensively with this lens. And so what you can do is explain to the patient that we'll first set both eyes for distance and then slowly bring in the non-dominant eye to allow for customized mini monovision. And this patient seems motivated, money is no concern, time hopefully will be no concern, and we can really spend a majority of our time really customizing the vision. But in any circumstance where we do monovision or mini monovision, we explain to the patient that at night when they drive or when they're trying to read subtitles, they will enjoy distance correction that brings both eyes working together. And depending on how much near we titrate into the lens, they may need reading glasses. Um, so patients really have to understand the expectations that we can't bring back what Mother Nature gave us way back when, but we can move in the right direction. The other thing is that this patient has a posterior capsular pacification uh, risk or fibrosis of the capsule because of the, the um, type of cataract that he has. Um, and so he has to understand that at one month or two months or earlier, we may need to do a laser uh, to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the vision or may need, if he chooses the light adjustable lens, may need to open the capsule prior to any treatments uh, to make sure that he has uh, the best understanding of the uh, customized mini monovision. I think it's our responsibility to be the patient's advocate um, in choosing these technologies because we understand how they may interact in the present and in the future. And unless, um, if you want to go down the road of hoping that a technology will work for them, we need to be prepared to deal with all the pathologies that may happen and the comorbidities that may result in an IOL exchange in the future. Most importantly, we need to avoid being pushed into implanting a technology to please the patient and hope that the problems don't arise in the future given the comorbidities. I think informed consent should be performed by the doctor. They need to understand their anatomy and why they're making certain decisions. And we need to be their advocate and understand how we're supposed to guide them and make the recommended appropriate choice for the patient. So Ashley and Morgan, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, the only thing I would say that stands out to me is whenever you see other ocular pathology, make sure that you discuss that with the patient before surgery, because anything that you discussed beforehand was pre-existing. Anything that you mentioned to them after was caused by your surgery. So it's really important to kind of mention, you know, the gotata that you see. Um, I think that was mentioned of that, that there might be some minimal changes to the RPE on the macula OCT. So just mentioning those things ahead of time and how that might play into their final visual acuity 
activity. What I say to my patients is I can't give you back your eyes like when you were 20 years old. I can get you pretty close, but we'll never get really there. And I think that helps them understand that I'm not promising them the world. I'm just promising them that there'll be some improvement. I think that's a great point, Ashley. You know, really just pointing out what they have pre-existing because you're absolutely right. They blame you for everything down the road, even if it is pre-existing, if you didn't mention it to them specifically. So I think that is very important. You know, this is kind of this new, it's not really new, but but it's something that with advanced technology lenses, we're having to make these decisions earlier as patients are seeking cataract surgery earlier is, okay, you have the early signs of a disease. Do you want to take it? Do you want to take advantage of the advanced technology we have to offer that may benefit you for the next 10, 15 years before your disease progresses, or do we want to play it safe? And that is a completely patient-dependent uh, discussion and decision-making that and every patient may be different. And that's one of those situations where when the patient does ask me personally what I would do, you know, I tell them I personally would go for the extra vision at that point in time because I don't know what the future holds, but I, I know what the next five to 10 years hold. But that that should not influence their decision because it's particular to them and their thresholds for risk. And that's really what I think it comes down to in some of these cases. Yeah, I, I agree and, and echo everything you, you've said. You know, I, I, this is what I tell patients. You know, um, my belt size is perfect for what it is now. But if I bought a pair of pants that were $1,000 for today, uh, I, I might not necessarily fit in those pants, you know, five or 10 years from now. And then we chuckle about it. But I mean, the point is, is over time, we just can't predict things uh, changing. And if, if things do change medically, as far as our eye health and so forth, it could obviously adversely affect the vision for the patient. And so I try to frame it that way. And I also tell them this, you know, your natural lens is made of protein and your implant is made of plastic. And so I, I also make them clearly aware, as you, you said, Ashley, that you, know, you can't turn back the clock. And so I think by, by having those real blunt, honest conversations with patients, I think it really does help move things along and get them to that realistic place. All right. So this is the third and final scenario, which is management strategies for the unhappy patient. And this is a case. You perform flawless cataract surgery on a patient because I know, Morgan, you are a flawless cataract surgery kind of guy. And you implant the latest presbyopia correcting IOL technology. The IOL is perfectly centered. And the manifest refraction is plus 0.75, plus 0.50 at 90 postoperatively. Yet the patient is less than thrilled. And so, number one, what is your response when the patient asks, what happened, doc? Number two, what's your process to determine why the patient's dissatisfied? Three, uh, if the refractive error is ruled out as a cause of the patient's dissatisfaction, when do you give up on the lens and consider an exchange? And if you proceed with an exchange, you choose a monofocal lens or a different presbyopia correcting lens. Would you charge the patient for the extra work? And then lastly, you know, IOL exchange can be tricky, especially if, it's, if the initial surgery took place many years ago. Some studies have suggested that meticulous capsular bag cleanup and capsule polishing reduce the risk of complications with exchange. Have you modified your cataract surgery technique to anticipate the potential need for an IOL exchange? Sorry, I gave you the most questions, Morgan, uh, but I know you're up for the challenge. Uh, so what Perfect. do you think, Morgan? <laughs> Please yeah. give us an overview of your approach to this uh, tough, tough situation. Yeah, and they, these tough situations obviously occur for all of us, right? If, we, if we're if we implanting a lot of advanced technology IOLs, we're going to get the unhappy patient because there's not not 
every patient is always perfectly matched with the IOL because again, hindsight's 2020 and we don't always have that luxury preoperatively. So when a patient asks what happened, my first, the first thing I do is I reassure the patient that I'm on their side. You know, with any issue postoperatively, you have to make sure that the issue is on one side and you and the patient are on the same side facing that issue together as a team. Because if you let the issue get in between you, whatever it may be, whether it's dry eye, refractive uh, error, you know, macular edema, whatever it may be, if that issue is between you, you're going to lose the trust of that patient. And that's the most important thing through this process is, is having that, that, that patient's trust. And so that's the first thing I do. Reassure the patient, let them know that I'm on your team. We're going to figure out what's going on and we're going to get you there. Okay. It may take a little extra time, but we're going to get you there. And, and that starts preoperatively, you know, really informing the patient. This just echoes what both Ashley and Nicole have said, and that preoperative counseling is very, very important. I, I take them through, if it's a post-refractive patient, the complexity of some of the IOL calculations, um, if they have, you know, some irregular astigmatism, what lenses may or may not work for them, and really try to give them the overall best idea of what is likely to occur afterwards. But I always err on the side of under promising so that we can hopefully over deliver. Uh, I think that's that also is what what Ashley said earlier. And and so with that, you know, in this particular case, it at first glance, it looks like, okay, it was a hyperopic outcome. That's probably why they're upset. You know, if it's an advanced technology lens, like a trifocal, you know, those can tolerate some hyperopia, but probably not this. And so the first thing I would do is, okay, can we fix it with, uh, with a refraction? Okay, looks like we can't. So what's the next step? Okay, so now I'm looking at ocular surface. I'm looking at an OCT. And, and so kind of that final diagnosis of, of exclusion in a way is neural adaptation, right? So we we like to just kind of sometimes hang our hat on, oh, they just didn't neuroadapt to that lens just yet. We got to give them more time. But, you know, it does happen sometimes where, where there are lenses that patients just don't get used to, whether it's their angle kappa or cord mu doesn't quite align up with the, with the IOL and it's just not the right technology. For whatever reason it may be, you know, we may have to look into doing an IOL exchange. And that's kind of what's alluded to here. And the questions <laughs> kind of led into my answer there. Um, when do you give up? And so, you know, it, it's a, it really is a tough situation because it, it's so patient dependent. It depends on how long the patient wants to wait. If it is like, let's say that this patient wasn't, uh, didn't have, you know, they were imitropic after surgery then, and they were still having problems. I'd probably wait a little longer And this patient who has both refractive error and is unhappy even with correction, I'd probably move a little faster on. You know, this is someone who I'd, I'd probably be going back for, for an exchange and looking to, if it's a trifocal that they're unhappy with, I may, I may exchange them for a non-diffractive uh, EDOF, such as Vividi, and, and maybe even an LAL or, or just a monofocal, depending on what their preoperative history was. You know, I think if they've had uh, prior myopic LASIK and LAL is a, a, a good option if they didn't have trifocal technology work out for them the first time, which we know is successful. We know that we can have success with uh, trifocal technology in, in myopic patients, but not always for whatever reason. So yes, I will go back in for an IOL exchange and I have no problem doing that. And and I will move pretty quickly and I do I do a fair number of exchanges, not be they're not always my patients. Sometimes they're other people's patients, but I do do a fair number of exchanges and, and I'm comfortable with it. 
as long as the patient understands that there are additional risks with that, you know, and, and if, if they have advanced technology lenses and we're exchanging it for a monofocal, they may, they are going to lose those benefits, you know, and so some patients who think they're unhappy, but they have extended depth of focus or they have trifocal vision, you know, after the exchange, they, they realize what they miss. And so it's so important to really talk through all of those points before surgery. I don't charge for the extra work. I, I, you know, for us personally, we, we, we are, we are looking for an outcome and that's happiness. That's really what the game is here is patient happiness and satisfaction with the surgery. And so if the patient's not happy with a premium lens, there's no additional charge to go back and, and put that in. Uh, to go back and, and swap it out for a different technology or go down to a monofocal. There's there's no additional charge for that. I personally have not changed my uh, method of cataract surgery in terms of over polishing the capsular bag um, and making sure that there's not a single cell left. I you know I I think it's it's all risk benefit, right? So is that longer time in the eye? Do we do you increase the risk of dead bag syndrome by over polishing a, a bag? Um, do you risk more rotation if there's not as much kind of frictionary forces from some uh, residual anterior capsular um, cells? I, all of these things are, you know, kind of subjects of debate to some degree. But, you know, for me personally, I, I don't. I don't have a problem doing an exchange. I've done a, a, doing an exchange with most situations. I've done them 12 years out, I think, is the longest I've done them out. And who knows how that person did, did their surgery 12 years ago. Uh, so no, I, I personally haven't adapted or changed my method. Well, that's a very comprehensive answer. Um, thanks Morgan, Ashley, Nicole, anything else you'd like to add? The only thing I would add is I find sometimes these patients, when you start to then discuss doing an exchange and that you're going to put in then a monofocal lens and they're going to lose that range of vision, some of them then become very hesitant to proceed with that. It's like, they're not totally happy with the quality of the vision but they also don't want to give up the range of vision that they have. So those patients can be somewhat tricky. And I think in there starts to become like by individual case, what you end up doing, because you really have to make it known to the patient that they are going to lose that functional intermediate and near vision. So the only thing that I would add to this wonderful discussion is that, you know, the first thing you want to know is what are they doing currently uh, with their vision uh, without glasses, because the last thing you want to do is take away from someone what they're currently doing. Uh, so I always ask them, do you use your glasses when you drive? Do you use your glasses when you're at the computer? And do you take your glasses off to read if it's a high myope um, or a moderate myope? And I think that these are really important things to figure out because that helps you kind of categorize what the patient qualifies for. So the other thing that I do is when a patient talks about all their friends and their neighbors and things like that, and they start to get confused by the technology, it's really important to kind of have an algorithm in your head and ability to say to the patient, what works for your neighbor or your friend is not necessarily what's going to work for you because you have different anatomy. Um, so at that point, I'll say to the patient, um, if you can see in the distance and you look at your phone uh, without glasses, then we need to pick, pick a technology that at least meets that need. And so that becomes mini monovision or an extended depth of focus lens, such as uh, the Vividi. Um, if a patient is always taking their glasses off to read and wants this kind of precise vision, then that takes you into another uh, diagnostic dilemma 
do you use a multifocal or do you keep them nearsighted so that they can get that precision um, and they wear glasses for distance. So it all depends on what the patient is doing uh, prior to any sort of intervention to know how to at least meet that need. So the only thing that I would add is that, you know, I think in the preoperative discussion, when you're going over, uh, okay, we're going to aim you for distance, we're going to do the best we can. I explained to the patient that we determine the power of the lens based on the length of the eye and the curvature of the cornea and other parameters. And these are probability formulas, and we will do the best that we can. And with newer generation formulas, we're hitting our targets almost 90% of the time with a normal eye. Um, if the patient then comes back and says, well, why is it not perfect? I say, as I explained, uh, we do our best to hit our targets. Let's see what the problem is. And you become, just like Morgan said, you become their partner in the process of figuring this out. And the first thing we do is a refraction, uh, look at the ocular surface, make sure there's no fibrosis of the capsule. And then we do a contact lens over refraction, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a hard contact lens. And we show the patient, this is what would happen if we did any sort of laser vision correction, or if it was a, hyper, a big hyperopic outcome, um, IOL exchange. And if the patient ends up saying, you know, irrespective of the technology that's there, this is amazing, this is really what I wanted, then really what you need to do is decide if it's myopic or a low hyperopic correction, you can do laser vision correction after you open the capsule and make sure that you're at least you know eight weeks out of the post-operative period, um, or you can do IOL exchange if there's a hyperopic outcome. Um, and really understanding that big hyperopic outcomes are more appropriately uh, dealt with by exchange is really important. And piggyback IOLs um, are not always the answer these days as uh, they can definitely cause iris chafing and other issues over time. So my approach is to put a contact lens on, do a refraction and show them how good their vision can be, make sure that that technology is the right technology for their eye, and then moving on after that, obviously making sure the ocular surface um, is normal, that they're off of all their drops uh, before you make any of these decisions, but telling them that you're not gonna leave them, that you're gonna help them through the process and being comfortable with IOL exchange is critical to using any advanced technology um, IOL. I, I agree 100%. I think it all boils down to uh, expectation setting before and after. You, you know, it's challenging because I think, as you said very well, that you know, you want to be on the same side as a patient. And that is so important. Uh, I think sometimes early on, at least in my career, you know, you, you kind of take things personal and you get a little defensive. And so kind of that was my learning point in, in, in sharing this case is, you know, we can't, this is not about me. Uh, this is not about the person in the mirror. This is, a pers this is about the patient. And, uh, and I love what you said too about, you know, I, I agree with you. Again, I think everyone's different situations, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't charge the patient either because, you know, like you said, you want to make them happy because, you know, you, you, you nickel them, dine them and, and you do this and that. And then, you know, they start to create a narrative that, you know, you're, you're just in it for the money or, you know, you, 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 know, you, you, know, you didn't really make them happy. And, and that just kind of can sour the relationship. So I, I agree. I think it's just, you want to make the patient happy no matter what it, what it costs. Um, but, you know, ultimately sometimes even when the patient aligns with you, 
uh, they're really trying. They, they want to see, um, and but they can't. And, and that happened to me on, on a, an occasion as a patient. She was so patient. She worked really hard with the lens, but it started to interfere with her job. She couldn't see uh, to do it. So we finally took it out and put monofocals in, and, and, and she ended up very, very happy. So to your point, I think, you know, what is their what is their trade off? Their plus and minus. You know, if you don't want to give up that range, well, then you know you have to understand this is the best we got. You know, I think that um, again, breaking down their expectations. You know, some of these people are still thinking they're they're going to have you know twenty year old vision, and I think um, if they really are not willing to let go of that near vision, uh, then it tells you they're you know they're not that miserable. You know, so. Um, those are my thoughts. All right. And that brings us to the end of our discussion today. Doctors Brissett, Fram, and Micheletti, thank you so much for being with me for this episode and for sharing how you'd approach these challenging scenarios. We all know that the process of determining and understanding our patients' desired refractive goals and communicating to them the strengths and weaknesses of each IOL is both tedious and time-consuming, but is also the single most important factor in patient satisfaction after surgery. I hope that these scenarios and perspectives on how to manage them presented here and in the July issue of CRST prove useful to all who are endeavoring to master the preoperative consultation. To learn more about the articles discussed in this episode and to read all of those featured, click the link in the show notes or head over to crstoday.com. And for more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.